today is from Isaiah chapter 53 verses 1 through 12. It can be found beginning on page 780 of your pew Bible. But first, will you pray with me? Father, we have much to be thankful for today, for the blessings you have given us, for your Son, our Savior, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and for your word. Use your word to transform us today. In your Son's precious name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. Thank you, Carol. You know, when I read Isaiah 53, it just blows my mind that Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. And yet these words were spoken and written, and it's a beautiful prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I mean, it describes exactly what Jesus did. Let's look again at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isn't that a beautiful description of Jesus on the cross, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities? In Luke chapter 22, before Jesus is uh, betrayed by Judas, he actually lets his disciples know, Luke chapter 22, verse 37, that he is the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus knows that he has come to this earth, not just to live among us and to teach us and to heal us, but ultimately to die for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Can you imagine, just for a moment, if you were in Jesus' position the week of that final Passover, you're in the city of Jerusalem, people have come from all over uh, to, to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, you've washed your disciples' feet. You even washed Judas's feet, who you know is going to betray you. You've told your disciples that you're going to be betrayed, that they're going to scatter uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And, and then he even told Peter, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. And knowing that you're about to be arrested, you're going to be beaten, flogged, and ultimately crucified. How would you feel in that moment, that night, what emotions would be running through your body? I don't know about you, but I would be scared to death. I mean, of all the ways to die, a crucifixion had to be the worst possible way to die. I mean, if you're going to kill me, make it fast. But a crucifixion was a long-suffering death where they put nails in your hands and your feet and you would die of exhaustion and asphyxiation because you couldn't breathe. You, you would literally drown hanging on a cross. Die, slow, painful death. What are we to do? What are we to do when, when we know that hard times are coming? Or what are we to do in the, the midst of a, a painful suffering? What are we to do when we know that things are not going to be easy? What are we to do when we feel anxiety, sorrow, and stress in our lives? What do we do when the layoff comes and our future seems uncertain? What are we to do when our children seem or our grandchildren seem to have lost their way? What are we to do when the marriage suddenly ends or the dreaded diagnosis comes or the loved one dies and we continue to feel the absence of their presence every day? How are we to deal with the stress and the anxiety and the sorrows of this life? To find out how Jesus did, Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. It may be found on page 1058 of your Red Pew Bible, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks that by your spirit you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. 
Oh God, we thank you for the example that Jesus is to all of us and how we should handle stress and sorrow and pain and fear. God, I pray that as we read your word, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be open and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with, with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's very interesting to me that of all the emotions that Jesus could be feeling right now, his, his primary emotion is, is sadness. He's sad. He's not afraid. I mean, I would have been freaked out knowing that I was about to be crucified. I mean, what a horrible way to die, right? I mean, we're all going to die someday, but hopefully it's, it's kind of one of those deaths where you just fall asleep. And you, you know, you wake up in heaven. That'd be a great way to die. Or, or, or at least you could have some morphine, right? If you're going to struggle, you could have some, some painkillers. But he's going to die on a cross. I mean, I would have been so anxious and nervous and worried about that. I don't know that I'd be say I was sad. I would say I was afraid. But Jesus is not afraid. No, he's, he's sad. What is it that Jesus is sad, sor- sorrowful, even to the point of death, he says? Why is Jesus so sad? Is Jesus sad because he knows that one of his 12 closest friends is about to betray him? Maybe Jesus is sad because he knows that all of his friends are ultimately going to abandon him once he is arrested. Maybe Jesus is sad because he knows that, well, that Peter is about to deny him three times. And Peter's supposed to be like one of his best friends, right? One of the inner three of Peter, James, and John. And is Jesus sorrowful even to death because he knows he's about to be betrayed, abandoned, and denied by his friends? Is it his sadness and disappointment in his friendships that ultimately is making him sorrowful to the point of death? I doubt it. I mean, if you read the Gospels closely, you'll see the disciples are constantly letting Jesus down, right? I mean, they, they don't understand his stories, his parables. 
Uh, they often seem to lack the faith they need. They're, they're always trying to jockey for who's going to be best and you know, who's going to sit his right hand and his left. They seem very selfish, ultimately. They seem very earthly-minded, not heavenly-minded. I mean, Jesus was used to being disappointed by the disciples, right? He didn't probably expect a whole lot from those guys. He, he knew that they were going to let him down. He knew Jesus, Peter was going to deny him three times. He even tells him before the cock crows it's going to happen. I don't think Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death because he's concerned or saddened by the the disappointment that he's going to receive from his disciples, how they're going to abandon him. I believe Jesus is sorrowful even to death because he knows that on the cross, on the cross he's going to experience the horrible feeling of being abandoned by his heavenly father. You see, in the very next chapter, Matthew 27, verse 46, we have the last words of Jesus on the cross. He's actually quoting Psalm 22. Here we read, And about the ninth hour, while Jesus hangs on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, forsaken is not a word we use a lot in the English language today. I actually like uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse from the message. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death because he knows that on the cross, as he dies a sinner's death, as he takes on the sins of the world, he will experience the full wrath of God, which involves, ultimately, God's abandonment. You see, the Apostle Paul helps us understand what really happened at the cross in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul tells us this, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. And this really makes it clear that Jesus became sin for us. Jesus was without sin, and yet he, he took on the sins of the world. Paul explains this in Galatians 3, verse 13, how this all works out. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is quoting there Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verses uh, 22 to 23, which explains, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. By dying a death on a cross, hanging on a cross, Jesus becomes a curse for us. He takes on the sins of the world, even though he was sinless. And as Isaiah 53 pointed out, it's a perversion of justice that that Jesus is is killed, and yet it's a fulfillment of God's will that Jesus would suffer so that we wouldn't have to. Yes, by becoming sin for us, Jesus has to experience the abandonment of our Heavenly Father, the feelings of abandonment. For in Psalm 5, verse 4, we read this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. By becoming sin for us, sin cannot dwell with a holy, righteous God. And so by taking on the sins of the world, by becoming a curse for us, Jesus experienced the horrible pain of abandonment, being abandoned by his heavenly Father. That's why he's sorrowful to the point of death. What should we do when we are sad, troubled, and stressed? I believe we should do what Jesus did. We should pray. We should pray. 
For prayer helps us see what God is doing. Prayer helps us submit to God's will. And ultimately, prayer helps us find peace. Notice in our text this morning, Jesus instructs his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, to watch. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is so, so weak. Prayer helps us see things the way that they really are. As we turn our hearts and minds towards God or the holiness of God, the power of God, the sovereign nature of God, we are reminded of God's love and God's power. And that even though life is not going the way we want it to, we can find that and be reminded in prayer that God is still on the throne. God is still very much in control. That a hair doesn't fall from our heads apart from God's knowledge and his love and his will. For as you read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus tells his disciples, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now lately I've been losing a little bit of hair and I know God's got an active count going on. I mean, I keep him on his toes. I don't know how much hair I'm going to lose, but he's watching. He's counting. He knows me. He knit us, each one of us, in our, in our mother's wombs. The, the pages are written in his book for us before they ever came to be, we read in Psalm 139. Nothing happens apart from, from God's knowledge and, and his watchful, loving hand. Yes, prayer helps remind us that God is with us, that he loves us, and that he's in control. Watch and pray, Jesus instructs his disciples. Unfortunately, Peter and James and John can't even stay awake for one hour. Now, admittedly, they had just had a huge feast. I don't know about you, but on Thanksgiving Day, when I have a big lunch, I usually fall asleep, particularly if the Cowboys are playing poorly. I just figured I'll sleep through that game. Don't want to watch it. But these guys have had a huge meal, and they know that Jesus is troubled, and he instructs them to watch and pray, but they're not able to pray. They can't spend even one hour praying. Of course, when was the last time you spent an hour praying? When was the last time any of us spent an hour praying? We actually have a, a weekly prayer meeting uh, Tuesday mornings from 8.30 to 9. Any of you are welcome to come to in our chapel, our little prayer chapel there. And we, we pray for all the concerns that, that people write in uh, as a part of their offering to us. They offer prayer requests, and we pray for those things. And it's a 30-minute meeting. But the truth is we probably spend about 15 minutes talking, taking other special prayer requests. And then we pray for about 15 minutes. When was the last time you spent an hour pouring your heart out to God, just praying before him? You see, if the disciples had been praying, they would have been perceptive to what God was doing. They would have seen how much trouble Jesus was in, how he was sorrowful to the point of death. They would have understood why. And so they would have prayed for Jesus and not abandoned him as they are bound to do. Yes, when we feel ourselves becoming stressed and overwhelmed, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to pray. If they had prayed, they would have seen what God was doing. They could have participated in his work. Murray often says that the greatest thing we can do, the most we can do is pray. I believe Murray is right. Prayer helps us connect to God so that we can see what God is doing around us and we can participate in his active work. As Presbyterians, we actually recognize that the doctrine of original sin that states because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have inherited a sinful nature that left our own, we are prone to wander, we are prone to stray from God. And, and, and so we, we are totally depraved sinners who need to pray continually, regularly, so that we might resist temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh that we have inherited is so, so weak. 
Yes, throughout our day, we should have a, a running conversation with God. As Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we should pray without ceasing. And we practice the presence of God by having that conversation. I love the way Martin Luther, uh, in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, he says that prayer should be brief, frequent, and intense. Brief, frequent, and intense. Thank you, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Guide me, Lord. Throughout the day, we should be asking, talking to God, communing with God through quiet conversations of prayer. If we find ourselves becoming stressed, we should follow the example of Jesus, and we should pray. And notice that Jesus prays repeatedly. He prays three different times he prays. But notice there's a progression in his prayer. It's not the exact same prayer each time. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we have the words that Jesus initially prays. He says, verse 39, my soul is very sorrowful. Oh, that's not it. Uh, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In his humanity, Jesus doesn't want to experience the pain of the cross. Jesus doesn't want to experience the abandonment of God the Father through a sinner's death. And so like many of the Psalms of David, Jesus is real honest with his heavenly Father. He just pours out his heart. He tells him how he's feeling. He's asking that things might change. And God wants us to do the same. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus Jesus is honest in his prayer, and we should be as well. God can take it. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to pour out our emotions to him, whether it be anger or fear or sadness, whatever we might be feeling, he wants us to share that with him. He wants us to unload that burden with him. And notice that Jesus prays a slightly different version of that prayer the next time. He goes back to God three times, and it points to the highlight, highlights the fact that when we pray to God, we shouldn't just pray once and think we're done. We, we should continually pray. Jesus honors the, the, the woman, if you'll remember, uh, who goes to the unjust judge and knocks many times. And even though the unjust judge is unjust, he gives the woman a request because she is so persistent in her asking. We should be persistent asking God repeatedly, regularly. But notice that as Jesus is praying this prayer of submission, saying, not my will but yours be done, there's a progression. There's a slight change. In Matthew 26, verse 42, we read, Jesus says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In the second prayer, it seems that Jesus has become more resolved to the fact that it is his father's will that he drink the cup of suffering, that it's not going to change, that that's what God wants him to do. You see, prayer helps us see what God is doing, but prayer also helps us ultimately submit to God's will. I love what Richard Foster writes in his uh, Christian classic, Celebration of Discipline. He says this about prayer. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. The more we pray to God, not my will but yours be done, the more willing we will be to submit to God's will. And submission is actually a great spiritual practice that helps us grow in our relationship with God. Richard Foster in that same book says this about submission. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. What a burden it is to insist on our own way, to make sure we get our way all the time. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love does not insist on its own way. 
That one of the ways we show love to others is by, by submitting to their will, letting them have their preference. I've learned this in parenting. Uh, every time we go to a restaurant, we take a little vote, and I always lose. My kids love Panda Express. I now hate Panda Express. <laughs> we go there so often, I'm like, oh, not Chinese again. I like Mexican food. That's my favorite. But regardless, that, that's, I, I, and when we pick movies, right? I love movies. My favorite movie is uh, Chariots of Fire. I love Hoosiers. I love sports movies. My kids don't like sports movies. They like animation. I've watched a lot of Disney the last 12 years. It's more than I need. But you know what? I love my kids. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what they want. We're going to submit because that's the way we show love is by submitting. Now, they've had to learn to submit to some of my parenting demands and requests as a part of their discipline. But, but when it comes to preferences and choices, I'll be willing to submit if I'm outvoted. That's one of the ways we show love for others, to our spouse or to our children, our friends. It's when we love someone, we don't insist on our own way. We're willing to put their needs and their wants before our own. If we really love God, well, then we're willing to submit to God's will. Of course, it's a lot easier to love God when we realize just how much God first loved us, right? Do you know how much God loves you? In our text this morning, Jesus is experiencing great sorrow, sorrow to the point of death because he knows that he's about to experience a sinner's death on a cross. Jesus is sorrowful even to the point of death because he knows that, well, as he bears the sins of the world and the full wrath of God on a cruel cross, he will experience the full wrath of God's judgment, which ultimately means he will experience the feeling of being abandoned by our Heavenly Father, knowing that sin cannot dwell with God. In his final breath, on the cross of Christ, Jesus says in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is experiencing abandonment by God so that we don't have to. Jesus has experienced great pain and great suffering ultimately so that we won't have to. We won't experience abandonment by God. No, the truth is that when we die, no matter how we die, we know that God is still with us. Nothing, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we die, we may be sad to leave our loved ones behind, but we know that glory awaits, that we will never be separated from the love of God. God will be with us every step along the way. We don't have to experience the abandonment of God because Jesus already has. He's already done it. That's how much God loves you. He loves you so that you won't have to experience that pain. No greater love, Jesus says in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who's willing to die for his friends. He's called us his friends. We've been adopted as his children. Oh, see what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been adopted and we'll never be abandoned by our Heavenly Father. God loves us. He loves us so much. And Jesus knows how much God loves him. That's why he's willing to submit to a cruel cross because he knows ultimately that his heavenly father loves him. He knows that God is good and and God's plan, ultimate plan, is for good, not for harm. And so Jesus is willing to submit because ultimately he knows that God is good. His will is for our good. 
Currently, there's a popular praise song by Chris Tomlin that we often sing downstairs at 11.05. It's called Good, Good Father. I really love this song. The simple refrain is, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. That's who we are. We are are beloved children of the Most High God. Our identity is is found in the love of God and, and nowhere else. It's not what people think of us. It's what God thinks of us. And he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. On the third day, he rose and conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the assurance of eternal life, so that we might never be separated from God's love, so that we would never be abandoned by our Father, that God will be with us to the very end of the age. His prayer, as we come to God in the midst of the stress and the strain and the sorrows and the turmoil of this life, as we come to God in prayer, we are reminded, we're able to see what it is God is doing. We're reminded that God is still sovereign. He's still in control. God gives us eyes to see what he's doing. Prayer, repeated prayer, faithful prayer, periods of prayer, help us submit to God's will as we humbly pray, not my will, but yours be done. And in prayer, we ultimately find peace. As you continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that after this powerful scene that God gets sent me where Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus ultimately faces flogging, betrayal, even crucifixion without resistance. He has submitted himself to the will of God, and in that submission, he has found peace. He even has the peace of mind to pray for those who are persecuting him while he's hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The next time we find ourselves becoming overwhelmed by the stress and the sorrows of this life, let us do what Jesus did. Let's spend some significant time in prayer, pouring our heart out to God, letting him know exactly how we feel. Let him know our fears and our sorrows and our pain. Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's okay to be depressed, but we don't have to stay there. We can give our concerns to our Heavenly Father. We can humbly offer prayers of submission to God, saying, not my will, but yours be done, O God. And we can do this because we know that our God is good. He's a good, good Father.